Have you ever seen the program The Chosen? I know what The Chosen is. I, I, a, lot of, a lot of my friends and a lot of my friends here at Living Truth have watched it and have talked about how, how much they like it and how wonderful it is. I said, no, to be honest, I haven't had a chance to watch it. And he says, well, there's a scene in there where Jesus is at the well with the woman. And he says, that's the Jesus I want to be. And immediately, I, know, I knew what he was talking about. Not because I know the passage, but because I know the times we live in. See, this friend of mine was experiencing what we call a deconstruction or a deconversion. I will stick with deconstruction because there is a distinction between the two. Deconversion is somebody who no longer believes what they once claimed to believe. A deconstruction can mean several things. It can mean that you've reevaluated the beliefs that you held and now don't view them the same. And what he was telling me was that he no longer believed the things that he thinks he once believed or the things that he held to. He wanted to be the Jesus like the Jesus at the, at the well, meaning he simply wanted to show love. Now, I think it's a great thing to show love, but we need to take Jesus in his totality. He was basically telling me that he no longer held to his once held core Christian beliefs. In fact, he said, you know, Joe, I haven't been, in, I haven't been to church in a matter of months. Uh, my wife is bugging me about finding a church. I haven't found one yet. I don't know that I want to get locked into going to a church. Um, maybe, maybe we'll find two or three churches. The point of all this is that we live in a time where the pressures from the outside world are so great that people are walking away from their faith in droves, especially in our, in our young folks. Kids will grow up in a Christian home. They'll get to high school now. Now it's happening in high school. They come home from school and they tell their mom and dad they no longer hold to the faith that mom and dad have raised them in. We've seen it right here at this church. I've seen it with some of my best friends. They've had kids go off to college. Schools that they thought were rooted in a strong Christian, um, a strong Christian background. In fact, one of them went to Pepperdine. His daughter went to Pepperdine. And this is exactly what happened. She came home and uh, told her folks that she was an atheist and she no longer believed uh, the things that she was taught growing up. And they live right here in Corona. And I say all this because I want to stress the point that we need to know what it is we believe and we need to know why it is we believe it. And that there are good reasons to hold to the faith that we hold to. If I was to ask you, tell me a, a core essential doctrine that we need to hold on to to be considered or to remain in 
in Christianity? What is a core central doctrine that the church has always held that distinguished it from non-Christian beliefs, non-Christian religions, aberrant cults, etc.? What would be one of those beliefs? I'll say one. The deity of Christ. Okay, there's an example. The deity of Christ. You can't reject the deity of Christ and consider yourself a member of the historic Christian faith, whether it be Eastern faiths like Eastern Orthodoxy, Russian Orthodoxy, Armenian, um, or even Roman Catholicism, or American Evangelicalism, or some major uh, mainstream Protestant denomination. Can somebody name another one? The Trinity. Trinity is right. The Trinity is a distinctive doctrine that is unique to Christianity. How about another one? The resurrection. In fact, the bodily resurrection. Because even Jehovah's Witnesses uh, will say they believe in the resurrection. It's just not a bodily resurrection. So very important that it is the bodily resurrection. A couple more. Heaven and hell. Heaven and hell are very important, unique, distinctive beliefs. However, there are other religions that believe in something similar. So then the reason I'm I'm separating that, because I would say when you look at the deity of Christ or the Trinity or the resurrection, if you reject those, you're not saved. There are believers and there are some uh, differences of beliefs when it comes to hell, um, eternal punishment, um, things like that. So there's a little bit of wiggle room in there. There's a couple others. How about um, saved by grace through faith? That's a core doctrine. How about the vicarious atonement, right? The death of Christ on the cross, that's the vicarious atonement, the substitutionary atonement, the fact that Christ died in our place. That's another core belief. The virgin birth, that's another one. And those are, if you were to go back and read some of the old creeds, uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, the Athanasian Creed, they would all have those beliefs in there. If you go on our website and look at uh, Living Truth Doctrine, all of those beliefs I just mentioned, even heaven and hell, will be on our website. And so these are beliefs that have been held from the very beginning. So when, when we're thinking about people deconstructing their faith, they're not discovering something new. They're not uncovering the essential Jesus. It's not like um, in the 1980s, there was a group called the Jesus Seminar. And what they set out to do was to, uh, they wanted to recover, they wanted to recover uh, the, the essential Jesus, the historical Jesus. They wanted, to, they wanted to do that in juxtaposition to the Christ of faith. So the Jesus Seminar was a group of about 150 scholars, and they would get together, and they would go through the Bible, and they would determine what verses, what sayings of Jesus, what parables, 
what miracles, if any, were actually authentic. So here they are, about 2,000 years after the scriptures were written, and they're determining what's authentic because they want to uncover the historical Jesus and not the Christ of faith. The Christ of faith, that was the, that was the, that was the Jesus Christ that you and I believed in. That's mythology, the Christ of faith. We want, we want to uncover the historical Jesus, the man who did the teaching and was such a nice guy and talked about loving your neighbor and things like that. So they, they separated, separated it like that. And essentially, they, they ruled out anything that had to do that was supernatural. So they came from a, a worldview, a naturalistic worldview, which rejected the supernatural. And so when, when we look tonight at the resurrection, we're going to look at some, we're going to look at some information, what I would call evidence or data, that we will, we will approach it in an objective way or as objectively as we can, and we will withhold judgment, and then we will apply some of the tools of historiography that the historians use to determine whether certain things are historical or not. And so a naturalistic worldview, right off the bat, immediately rules out any supernatural. So any competing hypothesis for the resurrection, for the bodily resurrection of Jesus, they rule out the supernatural, and they have other theories. For instance, they would say, well, the disciples made up the story. They lied. It was, it was, a, um, it was, a, it was a fabrication because we know that dead men don't rise from the dead. That's one hypothesis. That... Um, Another hypothesis would be that Jesus never really did die, because if he had died, we know that they don't rise, so he couldn't have really been dead. So when he was placed in the tomb, he, uh, the cool air and the being in there a few days, he sort of got rejuvenated and walked out on his own. So that's another theory. So you're beginning to see that some of these, these theories are a little bit silly, because the attempt is we can't accept the supernatural. That's why we have to come up with these other theories. So let's go ahead. I'm going to uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read a little bit of that. And then we're going to talk about some of the evidence For the resurrection. First Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul speaking, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3 For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. So here Paul is. He's saying, pay attention. I want you to remember something. 
I'm going to deliver to you as the very most important thing what I was also given, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Over to verse 16. Paul continues this argument. He's making this line of reasoning. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He says, if, if the dead don't rise from the dead, Christ didn't rise from the dead either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith, your beliefs are futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. We're sitting here. We claim to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead. If we're wrong, we're wasting our time. That's what Paul says right here. If we in Christ have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin to look at some of the evidence for our Lord's resurrection, uh, we ask you to just open our hearts and minds. Give us the confidence that what it is that we hold to and believe is the truth. May it permeate our lives. May this season of celebrating our resurrected Lord give us a renewed uh, sense of purpose. May we reach out to those that we love, our family members, our friends that don't know you, that have walked away from the faith perhaps, that say they reject the truth of the gospel. May it give us a renewed sense of urgency and may we ask that you would be gracious and allow us to present the truth in a way that will cause some to return to you or come to you for the very first time. In Christ's name, amen. So it's a little bit interesting that we're going to compile evidence for something that we already hold to based on the fact that we believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. So we believe that it's inspired. And we believe that what it teaches is true. And you may be sitting there thinking, and therefore I don't need any type of evidence. I have an existential belief 
It strikes me as real and true. I've experienced uh, answered prayer. I know the Lord walks with me. And, all of, and no one would ever discount that. However, there is also a place in our lives for uh, evidence for our faith. And one of those reasons is so that we can be a more confident believer and reach out to those around us with that confidence and challenge people. Challenge people. Why is it that you believe what you believe? Here's why I believe what I believe. There was an, there's an uh, interesting uh, interaction in uh, Luke. I think it's Luke chapter 7. John the Baptist is in prison. Some of his followers have been watching Jesus do all these miracles, including raising people from the dead. And they, they, they go back and tell him. And he sends two more of his followers back to Jesus and says, tell us, are, are you the one? Are you the one we should follow? How strange from John the Baptist, the man who walked in the wilderness and baptized Jesus. Here he is sending his own followers, asking Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus says, go back and report to John what you have seen. Jesus is saying, here's the evidence. Report what you have seen as evidence that I am the one. So God is not opposed to us using our minds to convince people to have a second look, to consider, and God uses those opportunities. I know I've, I've seen it happen. I've presented some of this evidence in the past. In fact, I presented it uh, on, on a social media platform years ago. I had a friend reach out to me that I went to high school with, and he says, I don't know how I'd ever thank you. My mom uh, died two weeks after I read her all those things that you wrote, and she accepted the Lord based on those things that you wrote because she was convinced that, the, that Jesus rose from the dead. And so not to, it's not uh, for my glory, it's the Lord's glory, right? So I'm going to give you three pieces of evidence. One is the empty tomb. Two are the appearances to the disciples and others of Jesus risen. And number three is the origin of the disciples' belief in the bodily resurrection. So let me explain that. I'm only going to give you three pieces of evidence that we're going to look at. One is the empty tomb. Two are the appearances. And three is the origin of the disciples' belief that they experienced Jesus risen. So we look at, we look at uh, what Paul wrote, beginning in, in verse 3 of chapter 15, when he says, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 
So we're going we're gonna to unpack this particular portion of Scripture. So we're talking about a risen Lord who had died, was buried, and left an empty tomb. If you're writing, this is that knowledge dump I was thinking about needing to go slow. Why is it that we believe the accounts of an empty tomb in the scriptures? Number one, we believe the uh, account of the, an empty tomb because of the story of Jesus' burial. We believe that it's accurate. Why do we believe it's accurate? In the, in, uh, in the Gospels, they talk about Joseph of Arimathea as asking for permission to take down Jesus' body and place it in his own tomb. Which means his tomb and Joseph of Arimathea being one of the Sanhedrin would be a known official of the day, the location of the burial would be known. So when Sabbath was passed, well, I'm sorry, uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 42, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and then he rolled the stone against the entrance. So that portion of Scripture is repeated in each gospel. And because of that, we know the disciples wouldn't have believed in the resurrection if they had known that the body was still in the tomb. They could not have mistaken the location of the tomb. The disciples were preaching a message of the risen Lord in Jerusalem where the events of the Passion Week occurred, where the crucifixion happened, where the burial was, and they're going to preach a message of a risen Savior, but the tomb isn't empty? I don't think so. It wouldn't have worked. You can't say that they didn't know where the tomb was. Joseph of Arimathea, as an official of the high court, was a well-known individual. They would have never used someone's name. Had to be a real person. They'd have been called out if it wasn't a real person. So they used the name of a real person, a real official, as the individual who buried the body in a known location. So 
The disciples could have never preached a risen Lord had the tomb not been empty. Not only would nobody else have believed it, they wouldn't have believed it themselves. They wouldn't have been convinced of their own message. This is why uh, historians say that the burial of Jesus is one of the best attested facts in the New Testament. It's reported in every gospel. It's preached in Acts by Peter and by Paul. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We have at least five to six sources, independent sources, that report the burial of Jesus. Next reason why we believe the tomb was empty. The story that it was discovered empty by women followers. Who were the first followers of Jesus to report that the tomb was empty? The women followers. When Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Why does it add credence to the story of the empty tomb that it was women who discovered it and were the first to report it? Here's why. Women were not regarded as credible witnesses in first century Judaism. This is what is known to historians as the criteria. They use certain criteria when evaluating historical documents. They call it the criteria of embarrassment. Meaning, the people writing whatever they're writing, if what they write reflects poorly and could be an embarrassment to themselves, they count that as authentic, as an historical fact. Because people don't naturally speak ill of themselves or write things that would, of course, embarrass them. So here you have the writers of the Gospels basically saying the men were cowards it was the women who discovered the empty tomb. That fits the criteria of embarrassment, and therefore it's an authentic and true fact, historical fact. Women were, they were not regarded as credible witnesses, and compared to men, women were second-class citizens. 
Amazing what Christianity did, right? Paul says in Galatians that we're all one in Christ Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. However, I uncovered uh, uh, this. Now, I'm going to promise my wife I will, I will never say this. This is the first and only time I'll ever quote this. This comes from some rabbinical sources, and this is what they thought of women. Okay, babe, so this is not me speaking. This is, I'm just quoting here. This says, consider, consider uh, these rabbinical texts. Quote, sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to women. Another one, happy is he whose children are male, but unhappy is he whose children are female. Another rabbinical saying here, the daily prayer of every Jewish man included uh, this, this blessing. They said, blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So that comes out of first century Judaism, and uh, that's why we believe that the, having written that the women discover the empty tomb fits that criteria and it's an authentic historical fact. Another piece of evidence that the tomb was empty is the response we see from the Jewish leaders. What was the response that the Jewish leaders, what did they say when they heard that the tomb was empty? We have an account in Matthew, by the way, the Jewish response alone, in my mind, is proof that the, that the tomb is empty. There was, there's no body in that tomb. While they were going, this is out of Matthew chapter 28, verse, starting in verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took money and did as they were directed. And this story has spread among the Jews to this day. Think about that last little saying. This story has spread among the Jews to this day. Now, this is about 30 years after the resurrection that Matthew's writing this. Jewish authorities never denied the empty tomb. They tried to change the narrative. If the tomb hadn't been empty or the, or the disciples were mistaken, you don't think the Jewish authorities would have produced a body? Here's your risen Savior. They never produced a body because there was no body to produce. Does this make sense, folks? Okay, it's at this time... I want to see if there's any questions. So what we're doing right now is we're, we're, we're gathering data, we're building a case, and we're evaluating it in um, like historians evaluate uh, whatever particular writing from antiquity they may be evaluating. They have certain... Uh, 
Well, like I used the word before, they have certain criteria that they use that, that will help them establish whether something has credence or not. So I already said one of them. It's embarrassment. That's one of the ways in which they know whether something they are evaluating actually happened in the past or not. A, another, um, another factor that plays hugely, in fact, this is probably these next couple of factors are the biggest, and those are how early the writings give an account of the events. So how close to the events was that which was written, okay? It's not how long ago something was written, because something that happened in the past doesn't change based on how long ago it happened. But if there's an account, an eyewitness would be best, an eyewitness who gives an account as closely as possible to the events that happened, that is your number one best indicator that what's being reported is actually historically true. Number two would be a mul multiple sources. So not just one source, a second source that's independent of the first source that corroborates the story. It'd be like having, uh, I remember one time we walked out of church here on a Sunday morning, everything was busy, and all of a sudden you hear these cars screeching and a big accident happened. This was a few years ago. And there was an accident right out here on the corner on Sunday morning. Several people saw it. Police come and they take down eyewitness testimony. Guess what? All that eyewitness testimony is not exactly the same. But for the most part, they corroborated the events that happened. Who pulled out? What color car? Who turned where? You know, which car uh, created the impact, etc. So multiple accounts, early accounts, independent accounts give you some of the best material for establishing things that happened in the past. And then there are several other others, like examining a particular statement and seeing if there's embarrassment, seeing how it coheres to the rest. Is there a historical fit? All these little things that historians use. And the things that we're looking at now all fit the bill. The Gospels, impeccable. Multiple sources, early reporting, eyewitnesses or somebody writing, getting testimony from an eyewitness. For instance, Luke, Luke the historian. He wasn't an eyewitness, but he spent a, he spent a lot of time with Paul and spent a long time in Jerusalem where the events happened. He's very meticulous. Uh, Mark spent time with Peter. Peter, eyewitness, writing down exactly what Peter wants written down. So when someone says, he, Peter was a fisherman, he wasn't erudite, he couldn't write, he couldn't read, he didn't have to. He had Mark. So those are, those are some of the things that uh, historians look out for. 
Um, okay, any questions in regards to the empty tomb? Historians believe, and I'm not talking about uh, Christian historians, historians that don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead believe the tomb was empty based on these factors. Historians that aren't Christians also believe that the disciples experienced appearances because of these same reasons. Early testimony, multiple sources. That's our um, second line of argumentation here. The appearances of Jesus alive. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I said we would say something about 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If we didn't have any of the Gospels, if we didn't have any of the other New Testament writings outside of the book of 1 Corinthians, we could easily establish the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead bodily based on what we find in 1 Corinthians 15. And here's why. So if you, look, if you were to read through Acts, you'll see Peter preaching a risen Lord. Then you see Paul come into the picture, and Paul's preaching the same thing. I think in chapter 13, he preaches in Antioch, uh, modern-day Turkey. There's a couple Antiochs in the New Testament. Pisidia, Antioch, Pisidia. Um, and he's preaching that the Jews put Jesus to death, that he was buried, that he was raised. And then in chapter 18, in his travels, that's on his first missionary journey. Second missionary journey, he finds his way to Corinth. So when he says, when he's reminding them what he delivered to them, he preached Jesus as risen in the book of Acts on the second missionary journey in Corinth. Now he's writing and he's reminding them. Now here's what he's reminding them. He says, I delivered to you. Remember when I was with you? I delivered to you what I had already received. When was Paul converted on the road to Damascus? Acts chapter 9. Remember, Paul, persecutor of the church, he was converted. Let's say that Jesus, let's say we don't know exactly, but if we use 33 AD, it was probably around 30. Let's use 33 AD for the crucifixion for the, of our Lord. Paul was probably converted around 36, 35, 36 AD. What happens after conversion? He goes out. He says he spends some time out away. But then here's what he says. I think it's in Galatians chapter 1. He says that he goes to Jerusalem and he spends 15 days with Peter and James. James is there. He says he sees James. When did Paul receive the message about 
our Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. He either received it from our Lord directly when he was in the wilderness, or he received it from Peter. Either way, it's really close to the events. It's really close to the resurrection. Now, here's what's interesting about this portion of 1 Corinthians 15. Let's say he received it from Peter. That means Peter was preaching this message already. We're talking mid-30s. Peter's preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Why is that so significant? Because all throughout the last 2,000 years, people have attacked the scriptures and they've attacked the historicity and they've attacked the authenticity, the reliability. They've attacked it and said, these are inventions. The gospels weren't written till 90 AD or 100 AD or in the second century. And you know what happens over time? You play the telephone game. When you play the telephone game, you tell this story and the story gets embellished and then they add to it. And, And all of a sudden, you know, you have this man who's already, now he's a God-man. You just created out of thin air a Savior who rose bodily from the dead. But that isn't what happened. There was no time for embellishment. This isn't legend or mythology. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was being taught in the 30s. And We have scholars that will say it was being taught within six months. Here's why. Listen to to how I read 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas. There's a cadence. Now, this is in English, obviously. But in the original language, scholars say that this is a creed. What are creeds? Creeds are things that are easy to repeat. Creeds are things that are easy to memorize. We, this was an oral culture. If something was important and you wanted to pass it along, you would memorize it. This was put in an easy-to-memorize creed because it was important, because the disciples were teaching the risen Lord immediately. And they were teaching it in Jerusalem, where Paul ended up going and spending 15 days with Peter and learning this. So when Paul's preaching it in Acts, he had already learned it in Jerusalem. And so the best criteria we have is Corinthians and this creed in verse 15, chapter 15, the Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Matthew, Luke, and John. We turn on the Hallmark Channel. We turn on the History Channel. We turn on PBS. We turn on some channel this time of year, and there's all these goofy stories about Jesus. Well, because they uncovered something or they found a lost gospel, or there's new manuscripts. Not so. They are, they are taking sources from the 2nd 
century and beyond, the late second century and beyond, and they're saying, how come you didn't include these in your Bible, huh, Christian? Why didn't you include them in your Bible? Because you, you know, they were excluded. This is the real stuff. Baloney. The real stuff is what was written close to the events. Not end of second century. That's nonsense. That's embellishment. That's mythology. That's legend. Not 1 Corinthians 15. Not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So don't fall for it. It's time that we deconstruct other people's worldviews. Any questions? Nobody? I see some students in here, ex-students from uh, Truth Academy. Mr. Trombley, do you have a question? <laughs> Okay, okay. So you could be up here. So we have the empty tomb. We have the appearances of Jesus alive. Why do we believe the disciples saw Jesus alive? Well, we have the, the list of who Jesus appeared to here in 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared, he appeared to Cephas. Now, we do know in John that Jesus was on the shore. Peter comes off the shore. Jesus calls him in. They're not sure who that is. He's preparing breakfast. And then he, Jesus goes through his tripartite. The, the, the three questions he asked, Jesus, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? We know that was the risen Lord that restored Peter. Jesus, do you love me? You know I love you. Jesus, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Jesus, do you love me? Why are you asking me? You know I love you. Okay? We know that happened. But here, this is a different appearance. He singles out Peter. Think about what, what, what leader Peter became. Instead of the Peter that denied Jesus, he denied Jesus to a little girl because that's how afraid he was. And because of the appearance of Jesus, he became bold and preached the risen Lord in Jerusalem in the face of the opposition, risking life and limb, getting arrested, ending up... Uh, martyred around the mid-60s. By the way, Paul was martyred also in the early to mid-60s. By the way, James, same thing. We think, about, we think about Peter, the transformation that happened there. Paul reports, then he appeared, then he appeared to the 12. We know the 12, the apostles, the core group, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. What's, what's he saying? Why is he saying that? Most of whom are still alive. He's saying, go check it out. You don't believe me? Probably in Galilee. Galilee is where Jesus 
fed the crowds and the hillsides. And so there were some air, outdoor areas there. Then he appeared to James. What a magnificent... I love... This brings uh, chills to me when I read this every time. Then he appeared to James. Who was James? James was his brother. James was his half-brother that rejected him, that thought he was out of his mind, that wanted nothing to do with him, that went with his mother to, let's, let's go get Jesus. What is he doing now? Then he appeared to James. What a demonstration of grace by our Lord. And who did James become? He became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. The author of the book of James. James went from denying his older brother, thinking he had lost his mind, to dying for him. Josephus, a Jewish historian Josephus, reports that James was martyred for his faith in the 60s. These lives were transformed. They weren't transformed knowing there was a body in the tomb. They weren't transformed because they were hallucinating. One of the alternative theories. They weren't transformed because they colluded, because they made up a story, because they stole and hid the body and tucked it away somewhere. I mean, who would, do, who would create a conspiracy that got them no riches, no women, and no uh, cultural gravitas? It got them no political power. It got them nothing. They gained nothing except opposition, beatings, whippings, you know, the sort, getting thrown in jail. So, no, there was no conspiracy. They weren't mistaken. Uh, Jesus didn't uh, come out of the grave because he didn't, hadn't really died. No, they were transformed because they knew that they saw Jesus risen as Lord. Transformed lives. So we have the empty tomb. We have the uh, appearances of Jesus alive, what we call the post-mortem appearances. And we have basically the, the birth of the church, the origination of the church, the origination of the uh, disciples' belief that caused them to set the world on fire. To me, that is probably the, uh, we think of a cumulative case, but that alone, the birth of the church, to me is the, probably the preeminent evidence along with Paul's life, the cha his changed life, as a persecutor of the brethren, as a murderer to a follower. Unbelievable. So Paul made the argument, 
If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I read that two days ago, and I also read this. First Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, this is Paul talking about our mortal bodies becoming immortal. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I read that passage two days ago. I was asked to, I was asked to help a family that is dear to us. I'm not going to say who they are, but a family that is dear, and they are family, had to bury a young mother of four children. She was in her, she was in her 30s. And um, the, I, have, I have never uh, done something like that before. And there were a lot of people there. And I was told that she knew the Lord. And there was so much heartache, so much heartache. Half of them didn't speak English. A lot of them were from Mexico. I didn't, I'm not able to speak Spanish well enough. I, but I did speak in English, obviously. I didn't attempt to speak in Spanish. And there was a lot of remnants of, you know, like a, um, like a like culture in Mexico that they brought. And there was the banda music on the one hand, and there was mariachis on the other, and there was weeping, and there was wailing. And I was just asking, Lord, what, how do, what do I say? What do I, how do I help these people at all? And I reminded them when we got to the gravesite. Usually you think the, at the gravesite, there's just a handful of people that go. There was 200 people there, all there around the cabana. And I told them that the body that lay in that box will one day rise again because she knew the risen Lord. And that it's at that point that she would be able to say, death is swallowed up in victory. And that's true. That's not a permanent resting place. It's that it's temporary. And I, I did what the only thing I knew to do was to tell them that there is a hope, but the hope is in Jesus Christ because he is the first fruits.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to focus on what is the most essential and core of all of our beliefs. And that is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Throughout the scriptures, the disciples said, and God raised him from the dead. And God raised him from the dead. We thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. And we know we have a hope. We know we have an eternal hope. And it's secure in the fact that the tomb was empty. That our Lord was gracious and appeared to the disciples and many others. And that their lives were transformed and they spread the gospel. And we are the inheritors of that message. Lord, would you bless us and give us the confidence to speak the truth, to find opportunities to share with the lost. And may you be gracious and open eyes and ears to hear the truth. We ask in Christ's name, amen.